Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When neighbors of 3520 North Marshall Street in Philadelphia hadn't seen or heard from their somewhat eccentric neighbor, Gary, for more than a week, they were only mildly concerned. Just one year earlier, the man's wife had left him and he had disappeared for a couple of months then, too. But she had come back and Gary had come out of hiding. When she left again a couple of months later, it seemed like it was for good this time and Gary had begun acting even more strangely than he had before. But it wasn't really Gary they were worried about. It wasn't one of those places where people looked out for each other. No, they were more concerned about the fact that a disgusting, pungent smell emanated from his house. Yes, they were worried that something had happened to Gary or that he was dead inside the house. But mostly, they wanted to be able to stomach food again. By the time police bothered to show up and do a welfare check, the smell had been lingering for days and it showed no sign of letting up. It would transpire that the truth of that smell was infinitely more horrific than anyone could have imagined. If you've ever watched The Silence of the Lambs, then you're about to hear the story of the real Buffalo Bill. This is Monsters. Gary Michael Heidnick was born on November 22, 1943, in Cleveland, Ohio. He was the first-born child to his parents, who soon followed up with a second son, Terry. Gary and Terry, cute. When Gary was three years old, his parents divorced, reportedly due to his mother's drinking. Gary and his brother stayed living with her while their father moved out. Their mother would go on to remarry three times over the coming years, with each marriage being worse than the last. Eventually, the boys were sent to live with their father, who by then had remarried as well. Right from the beginning, Gary and Terry disliked their new stepmother and did anything they could to come between the couple. The relationship was made even worse by the fact that no matter what she said or did, their father always sided with her when it came to disagreements. Gary would later claim that his father was an emotionally abusive man whose primary mode of punishment was humiliation. Gary was prone to bedwetting even into his high school years and his father decided the best way to stop the behavior was to have Gary hang his urine-stained sheets from his bedroom window where the neighbors and passerbys could see what an embarrassment he was. At other times, he would hang Gary upside down by his ankles out of a window while telling him off for what he had done so everyone could hear of his misdeeds. When the boys misbehaved, their father wouldn't feed them until he decided they had adequately repented for their transgressions. Despite his tumultuous home life, Gary was highly intelligent and performed well academically. But even from a young age, his social skills were lacking and he was unable to make friends. Gary was also bullied for his misshapen head, which had been damaged when he fell from a tree as a child. 
Gary's inability to form bonds with his peers may be due in part to the fact that even as a child, he was always angry and refused to make eye contact with others. On top of that, Gary had an inherent dislike of females whom he would repeatedly yell at or say, quote, you're not worthy enough to talk to me. When Gary was 18 years old, he dropped out of high school right before he finished in order to enlist in the United States Army. Given his high IQ, Gary had hoped to be appointed to an important position such as the military police or as a weapons specialist. But after several applications were rejected, he began training to become an army medic. During his training, his superiors labeled him as excellent. It was as a medic that he was deployed to West Germany. But just three months after arriving, Gary began to experience physical symptoms such as dizziness, headaches, blurred vision, and nausea. Initially, he was diagnosed with and treated for gastroenteritis, a type of stomach condition. But over the coming weeks, the physician who was treating him noticed that Gary had other strange symptoms that didn't align with his gastro diagnosis. He prescribed Gary a strong anti-hallucinogenic medication and recommended a psychiatric evaluation. Gary was returned to the United States and transferred to a military hospital where he was diagnosed with a schizophrenic personality disorder. With that, Gary was honorably discharged from the military after 13 months of service. Given his medical background, Gary began training as a licensed nurse, but he continued to be plagued by his physical and mental symptoms, and he dropped out after one semester. After a similarly short stint working at a veterans hospital where he was fired for yelling at patients and regularly not showing up, Gary was left with few employment prospects. So he did what any person would do when faced with similar circumstances. He started a church. In 1971, at the age of 28 years old, Gary began to hold church services in his basement. He called his congregation the United Church of the Ministers of God and opened an investment account at Merrill Lynch under the same name with an initial $1,500 deposit. While Gary started off with just five parishioners, within a couple of years those regularly attending services had multiplied, and so had his bank account. Through a series of empty promises, manipulations, and smart investments, Gary had managed to convince his disciples to part with more than $500,000. That would be more than $3.6 million today. All the while, and unbeknownst to his followers, Gary continued to be plagued by his mental health conditions. On top of the deception he used to amass his wealth, Gary would tell his congregation that he was away or otherwise occupied when he didn't show up for services. But in reality, he was repeatedly admitted to various psychiatric institutions. During these stints, Gary attempted suicide at least 13 times between the years 1962 and 1987. Gary Heidnick was a very sick man, but not only in the way doctors thought. In between his psychiatric admissions and holding church services, Gary still had time to meet women and date. After a while, he was going steady with a woman by the name of Gail. Gail had issues with her mental capacity and therefore, when the couple had a son, he was immediately placed into foster care. The couple separated soon after and Gary began bringing home a new woman. Her name was Anjanette, and he had met her and her sister Alberta at one of the institutions where he had previously worked. But Anjanette wasn't a staff member. Both she and her sister were patients. Anjanette was mentally disabled and illiterate, and it's questionable whether she had the mental capacity to consent to their relationship. But consent was not a matter Gary really concerned himself with, and in 1977, Anjanette became pregnant. 
When their daughter Maxine was born the following year, she was immediately placed into foster care as it was decided that Anne Jeanette was mentally unfit to care for her. While both of these relationships present many glaring concerns around consent, it's what happened next that presented the first of many solid opportunities to stop this monster. Just weeks after Maxine's birth, Gary signed Anne Jeanette's sister, Alberta, out of the institution where she lived on what was supposed to be a day pass. Instead, for ten days, he chained her in his basement where he raped and sodomized her. That's right, it was ten days before police showed up at Gary's house to find her. Despite being found shackled, dirty, and underfed, it was only when Alberta was medically examined and found to have contracted gonorrhea that Gary was arrested. He was charged and found guilty of kidnapping, rape, unlawful restraint, false imprisonment, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and interfering with the custody of a committed person. For these heinous crimes, he was sentenced to just three years in a psychiatric institution. He would then have to spend three years under community mental health supervision. Three months after his release in 1984, Gary bought the house at 3520 North Marshall Street. Two years later, this property would become a dungeon of terror, torture, and cannibalism. The opportunities to stop Gary before this happened weren't over yet, though. During the time that he was institutionalized for kidnapping Alberta, Gary met a 22-year-old woman named Betty through a newspaper advertisement. She was living in the Philippines, and soon after buying the house, Gary flew Betty to the United States. They were married a month later. Almost immediately after the marriage papers were signed, there were serious problems in the relationship. I'm sure you're all shocked. Unsurprisingly, given what we know about Gary, he demanded ever more violent, painful, and perverse sexual experiences. Gary wanted Betty to be completely submissive to him. She regularly found Gary having sex with multiple women, and he would force her to take part in their liaisons. On top of that, he routinely raped her, beat her, and forced her to carry out depraved acts on other people, either with or without their consent. Needless to say, it was not the marriage Betty had signed up for, but having been brought over from the Philippines on her own, she was isolated and without a support network. Betty might have stayed with Gary if she hadn't found out that she was pregnant just a few months into their marriage. Once that happened, she knew she had to get out. She couldn't bring a child into the nightmare she was living in. Betty decided not to tell Gary about the baby as she knew he would never let her leave. Betty made contact with local members of the Filipino community and with their help, she managed to escape. Betty later filed a police report against Gary based on her experiences. Once again, Gary was arrested. This time, he was charged with assault, indecent assault, spousal rape, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. There's no record of any incarceration for these crimes, though. Six months after leaving Gary, Betty gave birth to his third child, a boy named Jesse John. Two months after his son was born, Gary began collecting the women who had become his prisoners. Josefina Rivera was a 25-year-old mother of three who had a rough upbringing. To make ends meet, she became a sex worker on the streets of Philly. It was in this way that she crossed paths with Gary Heidnick. On the evening of November 25, 1986, Gary offered Josefina $20 to come back to his place for sex. To Josefina, he looked like a well-presented guy. 
He was clean and tidy, and he drove a flashy Cadillac, unlike many of the sleazy Johns she had been with, and so she agreed. Together, they drove to the house at 3520 North Marshall Street. Gary Honey picked me up at 2nd and Gerard um, the day before Thanksgiving of 86. And um, he took me to his house. We went upstairs and um, we had sex. And afterwards, I was getting dressed and he came up behind me and started choking me. And, um, and he started choking me. But I, all I could remember was, I don't know, I guess it happened so fast, all I could remember was like a film projector of things that were going on in my life was like, you know, just flipping back. When I came to, um, he had a handcuff on my, on my, on my arm, on my vest, and um, he kept saying, um, shut up, keep still, I ain't gonna hurt you, I'm not gonna hurt you. After doing the deed upstairs in Gary's bedroom, he handed Josefina a 20. While she was getting dressed, he crept up behind her and began to strangle her. By the time Josefina realized what was happening, Gary had slipped a cuff onto one of her wrists. He told her he would kill her if she didn't do what he said. With that, he marched her downstairs and into the basement. The first thing Josefina noticed about the room was how cold it was. It was like standing on a block of ice and all she had on was a loose shirt. Then there was the damp and musty smell which permeated every part of the room. There was one tiny window, but it was boarded over so no light could come in, or more importantly, so no one could look in and see the horrors which were occurring inside. The only light came from a naked overhead bulb which was dim and flickered incessantly. On one side of the room was a chest-style freezer which Josephina thought looked like a coffin. She would later come to realize that that was exactly what it was. On the other side of the room was an old battered pool table with barely any green felt left on top. The floor and walls were solid concrete, hence the freezing temperature. As soon as Josephina entered the room, Gary chained both of her hands and her legs to a bar which ran across the ceiling. Just like the movie which would later be made based on this story, in the center of the basement was a pit dug into the concrete. Then he took um, muffler clamps and put the muffler clamps around my ankles with this chain. And then he used crazy glue to hold the nuts on. And he dried it with a hair dryer. He kept trying to fit me in this hole and he kept taking his board and he kept slamming it on my head, you know, trying to get me to fit into this hole. So when I was in there, I was like all cramped up and stuff. And I'm trying to, you know, and I'm like still screaming and hollering because I couldn't breathe because I have asthma and stuff, and I'm like, get all this dirt, and then like, I couldn't, I didn't have any room to move and stuff. So he comes back downstairs and he, he like, pulls me out of the hole by my hair. And he has a stick and he's just beating me with this stick. And then he puts me back in there. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
At first, the hole was quite small, measuring no bigger than the average hand basin. But every day, Gary would come down into the basement and dig the hole bigger and bigger. As he shoveled, he talked, and his words could not have been more chilling. Gary told Josephina how all he wanted was a family of his own, but all his children had been taken away from him. He said that he wanted hundreds of offspring and that he was going to collect ten women to impregnate so they could give him the family that he desired. That's when the reality of her situation struck Josephina. She was not going to be set free. She was not only going to be a sex slave, but she would also be forced to produce children. And even worse, she now realized that she was going to be the first of many who would be chained up in that dungeon. She was right. Two days later, Gary brought a second captive down to the dungeon. Sandra Lindsay was a 24-year-old mentally disabled woman. In keeping with his own twisted traditions, Gary had met Sandra when he had been committed at the same institution as her. I was in there for a long, long time because I know I was in there at least 27 hours because of the times from the radio. The only thing I remember after that is that it was somebody upstairs over top of this hole that was crying. And I know he kept saying, come on, Sandy, you know I'm not going to hurt you. I'm, you know I'm not going to hurt you, right? Me and Sandra... For the first month, me and Sandra State were there by ourselves. We didn't take any baths, we didn't comb our hair, right? We spent most of the time in a hole. He would um, bring us hot chocolate in the morning for breakfast. And then when we went down, like at night, he would bring down maybe two or three hot dogs or something like that. As per his usual routine, each day he would go down into the dungeon and use a spade to dig the pit deeper and wider. After getting tired of digging, he would force each of the women to have sex with him, first by mouth and then vaginally in hopes that he would impregnate them. Day and night, Gary ensured a radio was blaring music from the basement so the women's screams couldn't be heard. And when they did scream, Gary would beat them until they passed out. When that didn't work, he would throw them into the growing pit and lay sheets of wood over the top, which he would weigh down with bags of dirt. They could be left there for hours or days until Gary deemed they were worthy of being let out of the hole. When they were in the hole, they weren't given food or water. After a couple weeks of this treatment, Gary took his torture up a notch. He hung a large hook from the ceiling through which he fed a handcuff with the other end around one of the prisoner's wrists. When they misbehaved, they were forced into a half-standing, half-hanging position with one hand above their head and unable to move or change positions. Throughout their ordeal, the women weren't allowed to wear anything more than a light shirt. There were no blankets and no mattresses in the room. They were given very little to eat, sometimes just a few crackers and other days nothing. In another series of missed opportunities to put an end to the torture these women endured, Sandra's family had actually come to the house multiple times to find her. They knew of Gary through the institution where they had met. In the past, he had signed Sandra out on day leave and taken her to McDonald's and then back to his house. Her family didn't know it, but during these visits, Gary would force Sandra to have sex with him. At one point, she got pregnant. She didn't want to have a child, so with the support of her social worker, Sandra was able to organize a termination of the pregnancy. When she told Gary after the fact, he flew into a rage and stopped taking her out of the institution until the day that he abducted her. 
To put an end to Sandra's family making all these unannounced visits, Gary forced her to write a card and letters telling them not to come looking for her as she had run away and was fine. But the letters did little to deter Sandra's family, and when she had been missing for about a week, they notified the police that they thought she was being held captive at Gary's home. Appallingly, the officer took the letters as proof that the mentally disabled girl was in fact a runaway. When he ran a check on the man the family were accusing, he misspelled Gary's last name and decided that the situation didn't warrant any further investigation. Three days before Christmas that year, a third prisoner joined Josephina and Sandra. This time, it was Lisa Thomas, a 19-year-old mother of one. By the time she entered the basement, the pit in the middle of the dungeon was big enough to hold both Josephina and Sandra lying down at the same time. When either of them misbehaved, they would both be forced to lie in the pit together in total darkness until Gary released them. With the arrival of his third victim, it became clear that Gary had a very specific type. He only abducted women who were young and who were black. Ten days after Lisa, Gary came home with 23-year-old Deborah Dudley. By that time, Gary had started to force the women to beat each other in between times when he did it himself. He was also using the ceiling hook more frequently, and rather than his fists, he preferred to use the handle of his pit-digging shovel to hit the women. But what hadn't changed was the daily routine of the mouth-to-vaginal sex. He would work his way through each of the women, and when he grew tired, he would force them to have relations with each other, often violently and always forcible. All the while above ground, Gary carried on living life like a somewhat normal person. He had girlfriends who stayed over at his house. He had dogs whom he fed and walked. In fact, he treated those dogs better than the harem of prisoners he kept in his home dungeon. The dogs also gave him an idea, and after Deborah arrived, Gary began feeding the women dog food almost exclusively. Two weeks after Deborah, Gary abducted his youngest victim, Jacqueline Askins, who was just 18 years old. With five women now occupying the dark, cold, and unhygienic basement, the situation was bad. Really bad. But it was about to get infinitely worse. When Gary realized the women would talk about how they could hear him leave the house each day, he worried that they would scream and alert others to the situation. And he worried that when he was gone, they would talk about him and make a plan to escape. To solve this problem, Gary took screwdrivers and shoved them deep into the women's ears so they couldn't hear anything. He kept pushing the screwdrivers in until liquid spilt from their ears. He installed another hook on the ceiling and strung the women up by their wrists for days. While they were hanging, they couldn't move and he refused to feed them or even give them water. Using this method, Gary clocked up his first murder. Sandra was left in such a position for five days after having dared to try and remove the wooden cover over the pit. But Gary thought she might be pregnant, so he broke with his ritual and tried to give her food. Sandra refused to eat. She was the most confrontational of the women and routinely stood up to Gary no matter the punishment he dished out afterwards. When she refused to eat, Gary took to forcing the food into her mouth and covering her face with his hands until she had no choice but to swallow. After a few days of being strung from the ceiling, she complained of a fever and she started vomiting. Gary refused to believe there was anything wrong with her and he wouldn't let her down due to her previous refusal to do as she was told. A few days later, he finally unlocked the chains and Sandra slumped to the floor. 
it caused Sandra to go on punishment for all these days, you know, and um, he had her handcuffed, like to the ceiling beams, like for for a couple of days, and she wouldn't eat and stuff, and he didn't um, and he was trying to make her eat, and he was like putting she was putting bread in her mouth, because when you got on punishment, first he would just give you water, then he would give you bread and water, and then you like. I don't know, I guess like he would take away all your privileges and then you'd have to start all over again, you know. Our whole body just fell. And she was just like, the only thing that was holding her up was just the handcuff, you know. And I kept saying, Lisa, go over there and tap Sandra and see what's, and tell her, you know, see what's wrong with her because her whole body was collapsed. And she kept tapping her and tapping her and Sandra didn't move, you know. So he just puts the key in the handcuff and her whole body falls and her back of her head hits the, 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 the concrete on the, well, like the hole, the surrounding of the hole, his, the back of her head like hits the corner of this hole. And um, he's like, she's dead. You know, she's dead. And that like really had me so messed up because Sandra had been there with me from the beginning, you know. He kicked her repeatedly in the back of the legs as she was lying in the pit. When he finally checked for her pulse, he found none. Sandra was dead. All Gary had to say about it was that she had choked on a piece of bread. Sandra's death presented a number of problems for Gary. First of all, she was supposed to be having his baby. But more pressingly, what was he going to do with her body? Her family still dropped by regularly, demanding to find her, and he was worried if he discarded her remains somewhere, she could be identified and traced back to him. So he did what any normal psychopathic killer would do. He chopped up her body, but not only in a dismemberment kind of way. He broke her body down into the smallest possible sections he could. The bones that had some meat attached to them were fed to his dogs, while the flesh from other areas was ground up into mincemeat. He later mixed this into the dog food, which he fed the women. He got Sandra's head cooking in a pot upstairs. Right, and he got her ribs and stuff in a little roasting pan in the oven, you know, and her arms and stuff is in the freezer, and he says that if I don't cut out my bullshit, that I, this is going to be me. He was taking Sandra's body and grinding it in a food processor and mixing it with this dog food that they was, he was feeding these, these three other girls. When he couldn't get his dogs to show any interest in Sandra's head, feet, hands, or ribcage, he decided the next best option was to cook them down as they were too big to put straight into the trash. He put the ribs in the oven and the head in a huge pot on his stovetop. It's difficult to explain how putrid and pungent the smell would have been, not only for his prisoners down below, but also for his neighbors. The smell permeated every inch of the house, inside and out. For weeks, it wafted through the neighborhood, rendering many residents unable to stomach food. Finally, one of them decided to call the police. He told them that there was a terrible smell and that they hadn't seen the owner of the house for a few days, which was unusual. When the officer arrived, he banged on the door for half an hour before taking a look around the back of the property. He noticed how all the blinds were duct-taped shut, and of course, he couldn't miss the smell. But when Gary answered and told him the smell was from dinner which he had burnt, the officer could see the pot on the stove and trusted Gary at his word. So he left. I know I sound like a broken record, but it was yet another opportunity that was missed. With 
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After Sandra's death and the visit from the police, Gary began to grow more paranoid. He was more convinced than ever that the women were plotting against him and trying to escape. No shit. So he took his torture to a new level. Yeah, apparently all that came before wasn't quite enough for Gary. He gagged the women when he left the house so they couldn't scream or talk to each other, and he designed a new method of punishment. He used to fill um, the hole up with water and take electrical wire. Well, like a plug that you plug in, he would take two, strip the two wires, and then um, he would take the wire while they were in the water and put it on their chains. And in the beginning, Deborah was, was hollering. And then she didn't holler anymore, and he thought something was wrong with the wire. I said, look, look down there in that hole and see what's wrong with that girl. I said, because he kept saying, she keeps saying Deborah did, that she laid face down in the water. So he finally listens up the board, and he says, yeah, she is laying face down in the water. And he's like, picks her up like by her hair, back of her head and something. He's like, yeah, he's right, she's dead. And now he's like, now all my troubles are over with. Now I can get back to having a peaceful basement. Gary filled the pit with water and forced one or more of his captives to stand in it. Then he stripped back an electrical wire and placed one end into the water and the other into the wall outlet. He would sit and flick the switch on and off, repeatedly electrocuting his prisoners. By the time Sandra had died, a hierarchy had been established amongst the women. Josephina had been in the dungeon the longest and was the oldest of the captives. Somehow, she had managed to find a way to convince Gary to focus his attention, namely his violence, on the other women. From the outset, Josephina knew that the only way to survive was to go along with what he wanted and say what he needed to hear. Gary was being played at his own game. The others noticed how Josephina wasn't beaten as regularly or as harshly as them and understandably they hated her for it. But this reached a whole new level when Josephina was brought in on the torture of the other women. She would be told to use the spade against them, and she got extra special treatment and nicer food when she told Gary what they were plotting against him. On March 18, 1987, Gary demanded Josephina punish all of the other women by electrocution. He forced them into the pit while Josephina filled it with water. Gary put the lid on the pit, which now had a few small holes drilled into it so he could see them through it. Josephina fed the wire through one of the holes where it came into contact with the shackles still secured around Deborah's wrists. The switch was flipped and the women all screamed in pain. When the current finally stopped pulsing, so too had Deborah's heart. I, Josephina Rivera and Gary Heinick, um, electrocuted Deborah Dudley at 3520 North Marshall Street. On whatever day it was, I can't remember, it might have been, let me see, it was Freedom 25th. Might have been like the 21st of March, 1987. By applying wires, applying electricity to her chains while sitting in a pool of water. Anytime that you're cut off from the world outside, 
and, and whoever's holding you captive, the same person after a period of time, you're going to grow to like him and regardless because he's your only contact to, to things that are outside. Or he, and he's, your only, he's your only source of survival and over a period of time, psychologically, you know this. You know, you know that this is the person that's got to bring you bread and water and, and things like that, so. It just became just, he just created his own little world in his basement and everybody just kind of pretty much dealt with it, I guess, in their own way. With that, Gary had committed his second murder. But more pressingly for him, he had another body to get rid of. The dismemberment, cannibalization, and processing of Sandra's body had left Gary with a bitter taste in his mouth. Not from the taste of her, no, it was the fact that the lingering stench drew too much attention. He knew that getting rid of Deborah in the same way would have the same effect and jeopardize his dreams of a harem of pregnant women. So Gary and Josephina put Deborah's body in the freezer. He decided that this time he would dump the body somewhere she wouldn't be found. Strangely, after the second murder, Gary began to treat Josephina more like a girlfriend and less like a captive. He allowed her to sleep upstairs and even took her out wig shopping and to fast food restaurants around where he lived. After a few weeks of this, he told Josephina he knew where he was going to dump Deborah's body. He drove out to the Pine Barrens of New Jersey and left her lying in a grove of trees. Later that night, he told Josephina he needed a replacement for Deborah. The next day, on March 23rd, they went out together and spotted a woman named Agnes Adams, who Josephina knew from her days of stripping. Gary offered Agnes money for sex, and she agreed when she saw the familiar face in the car. Just as he had with the others, the two had sex before Gary began strangling her. He cuffed her wrist and dragged her down into the basement while Josephina sat at the dining room table drinking a wine cooler. When he came out of the dungeon, he said, quote, that was easy. We can do that again tomorrow. But Josephina had plans of her own for the following day. From the minute she woke up the next morning, Josephina worked on convincing Gary that she needed to talk to her family. She told him she just needed a few minutes to reassure them she was okay and that once she was done, she would help him kidnap another girl. Gary was reluctant at first, but then he reminded himself that he had made Josephina sign a confession implicating herself for Deborah's murder and he warned her that if she ran, he would kill the others. So that night, he dropped Josephina off near her parents' house. They agreed to meet at a gas station parking lot at midnight, but instead of going to her family, Josephina went to the house of the man who was her boyfriend before she was abducted. When he opened the door, she attempted to tell him about the torture and imprisonment she had endured, but the man was skeptical. It just sounded too wild to be true. Rape, abductions, cannibalism, electrocution, beatings, and not just to her, but to other women as well. It wasn't until Josephina showed him the scars left on her wrists and ankles from the shackles that he considered she might be telling the truth. By then, he wanted to go and deal with Gary himself, but eventually he saw reason and together they called 911. Yet, just like her boyfriend, the police struggled to believe that what she was saying could be real. Thankfully, though, they did send out a pair of officers to talk to Josephina. After going through the same account as she had with her boyfriend, including showing the marks left by the shackles, the officers appeared to believe what she said. 
She told them how she was due to meet Gary at midnight at a local gas station. Together, the two officers pulled up behind Gary's Cadillac, drew their weapons, and approached the car. Gary looked at them with surprise and nonchalantly asked, quote, What's this all about, officer? Didn't I make my child support? It was a comment he would repeat throughout the night while he was held at the sex crimes unit, right next door to where Josefina was recounting in much more detail the horrors she had endured. Meanwhile, officers were dispatched to 3520 North Marshall Street where they waited for a warrant to be secured. Four and a half hours later, officers entered the House of Horrors. Half of the officers spread out into the house while the other half headed down into the basement. Despite Josephina describing what had happened to herself and the other victims, nothing could have prepared them for what they found in that home. I don't know if it would have been worse to have been the team who broke down the door to the basement and found two emaciated, bruised, and naked women curled up on the floor and another inside a deep pit covered in wood, or to be the officers who discovered a charred human rib in the oven and what was left of a human head inside a pot right next to a freezer containing an intact human forearm. Well, intact apart from the fact it wasn't attached to a body. The women were swiftly removed from the property and taken for medical assessments while Gary was arrested. He was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, six counts of kidnapping, five counts of rape, four counts of aggravated sexual assault, and two counts of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. You already know by now that Gary was a unique kind of monster, but you also know he was highly intelligent, and that came into play when putting together his defense. Gary claimed he was not guilty by reason of insanity. He then claimed that the women were already living in the house when he bought it, and therefore he wasn't to blame for their capture. At what point during the home-buying process do you not stop and mention the multiple women chained up in the basement? Seems like a notable discussion to have. His lawyers brought in quote-unquote experts who claimed Gary was feeble-minded and Josefina was the mastermind behind the monstrous acts the women endured. In an effort to portray Gary as insane, his lawyers dressed him in old, dirty clothes and stopped him from looking after his facial hair, which had always been neatly trimmed prior. His lawyer was even caught saying, quote, If you want to demonstrate that someone is insane, then they gotta fucking look insane. During the trial, he looked like a total whack job. Did I do that? Yes. But doesn't women organized against rape dress up their victims? So, now we're comparing victims of rape to a man who imprisoned multiple women for four months while carrying out every method of torture, abuse, and violation known to mankind. Okay. The surviving women gave evidence against Gary, including Josefina, who readily admitted to the part she had played in Deborah's murder. From her perspective, it was a game of survival, and she felt she had a mothering role in the situation as the oldest victim. Despite participating in the torture, she felt she was best placed to manipulate Gary into eventually giving her an opportunity to break free and save the others. And that's exactly what she did when she could have very well run away at the first opportunity. Instead, she immediately contacted authorities, which led to their rescue. However, the survivors dismissed Josephina's claims of somehow acting in their best interests. They accused her of participating willingly in their torture and asked the prosecutors to charge her as an accomplice, but they didn't. After a month of testimony, the jury found Gary guilty of all charges brought against him. For his crimes, he was sentenced to death. In response to the verdict, Gary stated, quote, 
I say real or phony, they can execute me because I'm innocent and I can prove it. That is the end of capital punishment in this state. When you execute an innocent man, knowingly execute an innocent man, you know there will be no more capital punishment in this state and possibly anywhere else in this country. And you know I didn't kill them two women. Go ahead and execute me. Yes, I want you to execute an innocent man so there will be no more capital punishment. I want to be executed because I want to be the last man in this country ever executed. That's the end of capital punishment. You don't do that shit, not in America, and you're not going to do it anymore because I'm ending capital punishment. Gary spent the next 11 years incarcerated before facing execution in 1999. During that time, he claimed he was guilty of all the charges except murder and therefore he should be exonerated. He asserted that the women were solely to blame for the deaths of their fellow prisoners, and he requested that his execution be brought forward as once the state executed an innocent man, then capital punishment would end. Despite Gary appearing to want his execution sooner rather than later, his daughter Maxine repeatedly appealed for leniency and a stay of his execution. She claimed that while Gary carried out the crimes for which he was convicted, he was a deeply unwell and psychotic man and therefore he was incompetent to be executed. In her opinion, you can have an extremely high IQ, astutely defraud churchgoers of hundreds of thousands of dollars over a number of years, meticulously plan and carry out multiple abductions and repeated torture in your dungeon while carrying out a seemingly normal life above ground and also be incompetent. Anyway, on July 6, 1999, Gary Michael Heidnick was executed by lethal injection in Pennsylvania. Ironically, Gary was right about one thing. He was to be the last person executed in the state of Pennsylvania up until today. But it wasn't because he was innocent. In later years, Gary was one of seven serial killers whom the character of Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs was based upon. He truly was a monster of monumental proportions. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.